Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Telt. This episode, Sandman number five, Passengers, with a cover date of May 1989, art by Sam Keith and Malcolm Jones III. And this comic once again teases that we might get the Cape Crusader himself to appear, and yet he does not. Yeah, this issue has I think is probably the most connected to the the DC superheroes that we've seen so far, but but no caped crusader will appear, but plenty of others. So we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, doing some some comics lore in in this uh in this issue. And this is the first of three issues uh, about the ruby. So this is kind of exciting is that the ruby is going to be the the one the one object that is the most difficult for Dream to get back and this is kind of the the most extended uh real plot arc where we have the extra characters, the ancillary characters, uh, stretching across issues for the first time. And on that note, I mean, this is this, there is a lot to cover in this in this episode in this issue. So let let's get into it. We open with an external shot of Arkham Asylum in Gotham. So we know that we are going to be getting this story of the the Ruby, uh, the last of Dream's tools that he needs to collect. And we're given a, a nice bit of stage setting here as well when we're shown that uh, a late night rerun of Alfred Hitchcock Presents is playing on the television in the security office of the asylum, and Gaiman invokes the classic theme music, which is uh, Gounod's uh, Funeral March of a Marionette. I think everybody knows this piece of music, even if you don't know the, the name of it. Uh, I think I've probably only ever seen about 10 episodes of this show, but I can immediately conjure up this music and uh, and also the image of Hitchcock's silhouette creeping onto the screen. Uh, have you seen much of this show? You know, I probably have only seen about 10 episodes or fewer myself, but I I think there's no way I would ever not associate this music with that image of Alfred Hitchcock or vice versa. When I see Alfred Hitchcock, I just expect that music to always be playing whenever he's introducing one of his films or anything. There's a lot of strange correlation in my mind with a lot of Alfred Hitchcock's stories, um, both film as well as his television programs, where sometimes it kind of comes across goofy, but also very dark. And here we're treated to the guards are watching his program and he's making a joke in which, uh, in this program he's laying down and the, um, the, the dialogue line he's delivering is, I think this proves that in some ways the airplane can never replace the train. Um, and that's from where he is, uh, in that episode tied to train tracks. And that's both, both kind of a throwback comic bit of, you know, being tied to the train tracks by a villain and will you be saved in time, but also really gruesome way to potentially be killed. And I think that's a lot of what we have going on, even in the first couple pages of this comic is, oh, superheroes, Arkham Asylum, joke from Scarecrow mixed with just tragic things happening to the security guards in Arkham Asylum. Yeah, there are a lot of villainous, kind of crazy villainous deaths in in this episode of Sandman. So it is a really interesting image that, that Gaiman has has conjured up here. This is, I've not seen this episode. It's from uh, an episode entitled Don't Interrupt. But the way that it's used here uh, with actual bits of Hitchcock's monologue from that episode, it really makes me interested to go check it out. So I've actually added it to the list of upcoming Patreon episodes for Valerie and I to do when when we do our TV uh, episodes for that show, uh, which I think will be, will be a lot of fun. I don't know, maybe we'll see if we can get you on that as well 
Well, I'd really like like to listen to you and Valerie to talk about it, um, whether I'm participating or not. But, uh, yeah, that certainly it's, it's just a strange, cause as you mentioned, and we'll get into this as we get into this, but, uh, this may be the Sandman comic so far that is the most present within the DC universe that has the most kind of character crossover from what we've seen of particularly heroes that are currently in print and not kind of throwback stories. Um, and yet, takes things in a very dark turn and starts things, as we'll see in later issues, in a very dark path. And so I think the juxtaposition of those two ideas of superheroes in bright outfits tied to tracks mixed with just the terrible things that are happening to the superheroes themselves, as well as those who come across their villains, where, you know, being tied to train tracks in a funny bit at the beginning of a television show would be the best you would ever hope for, hope for versus what does happen for some of the uh, characters that appear in this issue. Right. There's a, a real darkness uh, in this episode. I mean, it, go- it goes to a real dark place. And our point of view character here at this point is John D, Dr. Destiny, we've talked about before. And we have, we actually haven't talked much about the real historical figure of John D. Uh, I suppose we, we could do that here, but I think that we should save that for the next episode because we'll still be getting Dr. Destiny's story at that point. And this episode is, as you say, going to be so heavy on the superhero lore and, and, and comics history. So I think we'll, we'll save kind of our, our, um, our commentary for, for those things. So at this point, you know, John D enters the asylum's dining hall and he is startled to find a body hanging by a noose from the ceiling. But the, the real surprise here is that this is not actually a dead body. It's not a corpse. This is Dr. Stephen Crane, the supervillain known as the Scarecrow. And all of this is just an April Fool's Day joke, as this story is happening in the early hours of April 1st. And we're not actually told that this is the Scarecrow, or even that this is is Dr. Crane, but the artists do a really cool job of showing us that that is who this otherwise nondescript dude is. I really liked it. Yeah, I think it's great to to show his the guys kind of in a ghostly image hovering behind him makes it very clear instantly this is who we're talking about as Scarecrow, which uh, any kind of contemporary issues of comic readers in 1989 would get, as would probably anyone familiar with the Batman Begins film or any of the times that he's appeared in any of the animated series. Uh, Scarecrow, a fairly well-known Batman villain. Batman has the luxury of having perhaps the most well-known uh, rogues gallery of all comic dumb. I think even better than uh, those that Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four face over in Marvel, but uh, certainly in DC. Scarecrow, Joker, these are characters that we all, Riddler, we're all very familiar with. Yeah, it seems it seems like it would actually be kind of difficult for someone to not be familiar with Scarecrow because he is in so many of these movies and these cartoons that you'd almost have to be avoiding the Batman universe in order to to have not had a run in with Scarecrow. But this might still be a good time for our first installment of comics lore. So could you give us a rundown of who this character is, just in case there is someone who is unfamiliar with these Batman villains? The Scarecrow um, 
is a psychiatrist or psychologist, I can't remember which, by training, and he's obsessed with fear, and he's all about using gas or other things to cause inner fears to play out and incapacitate people, whether he's using it for petty crime or something more nefarious. Um, And it's interesting to me that this is the denizen that we see interacted with this, is we're being set up right away of the idea of fear, but it's fear than trying to make a joke. Um, and he references the fact that he wishes Joker was there because his little jokes around April Fools are the best. But but certainly this is kind of a, a mixed message in terms of the joke is something to scare you. He and D talk for a, a while and, and this is not just some random encounter. D is up to something and he this is where he, he explains his plan. He says that he's escaping Arkham Asylum now that he has his mother's uh, protective amulet and we'll recall that she died in the, the last issue and what he wants to do is get out into the world and track down his ruby or really I guess it's Dream's ruby the, the Materiopticon and once he's got that he says that he'll make everyone in the world insane and they in turn will make him king and and right this this making people insane is really kind of what the scarecrow does when he's out being a villain himself so this is like two professionals comparing notes here about how to go about doing this and what you hope will come of it which i think is a really nice touch and d goes on here he says that he's he's either going to rule the world or destroy it uh, but either way he is insistent that he will not be caught and will not be returned to arkham though scarecrow is less certain of that outcome because in his experience even though villains are breaking out of this place all the time they always end up back here and the actual dialogue is but we always come back here it's so scary outside which is uh an interesting uh idea in terms of first of all the humor of yeah they always get caught by batman or someone else and end up back at arkham on the other hand how terrifying it can be for these individuals who are there because they are mentally insane um, in, in the parlance of the comics, they're not able to function normally in the outside world. So there's also this comfort of them being surrounded in this environment where they perhaps are receiving some kind of treatment. Although so far when we've seen depictions of Arkham Asylum, particularly in the Sandman comics, it's more just that they're being locked up. But that does prevent them maybe from harming themselves as well as others. So it it's kind of an interesting uh, and kind of funny setup of insisting again that you're <laughs> sure, sure. You'll try to rule the world, but we'll see you back. You'll always come back and you'll come back, bring Joker back. We'll have a good time. We'll make, you know, we'll laugh about all the fun times we had killing guards, um, which then brings us to the next page where Scarecrow had mentioned, I did leave a joke in the other room, by the way, but it's not as funny as what the Joker would normally do, does. And then D sees that there is a guard who has been uh, hung with a kick me sign on his back. It's really gruesome. And, and it's set up perfectly so that we are turning the page as we've you know, been been told to expect this joke. So it really is a surprise for us as well, because it's, you know, it's not, it's not funny at all. But Scarecrow thinks this is funny, and this really tells us almost everything that we need to know about him. And it it makes perfect sense for you know for what Arkham Asylum is all about. And uh, you know, I think it's also interesting, right? That that the fact that this guard is dead here, this actually seems to help D make his escape. Right? He's aided by the fact that Scarecrow uh, is has his own agenda 
uh, is is murdering people because it's funny and it's April Fool's Day. That if that hadn't happened, it's possible that D would not have been able to to make his uh, his escape. So there's the kind of random confluence of events here. Like things seem to be kind of working out for D in a in a strange way, and we'll we'll see that uh, come back a little bit later too. I think. And it could be that the strange, the reason why it is occurring in a strange way is because of the benefit of the amulet that he received from his now dead mother. We don't see how he escapes. We just see that he has somehow overpowered a guard and taken the guard's gun. Um, and it could be the, the ran- randomness and happenstances of the world are working in his favor due to whatever magical or other pr- um, powers are associated with that amulet. So I wasn't sure we didn't necessarily see him holding the gun in his hand as he's talking to Scarecrow. And so at first I wasn't sure where he got the gun. But then I was looking back and saw that he had the gun in his hand in the very first page uh, in the upper right panel. Um, and at that time, I assumed when I saw the guard's body laying on the ground that he knocked the guard unconscious by, you know, hitting him in a kind of cartoonish way. But... When we get to the guard that has been uh, hanged later and then events later in the episode, um, I'm more concerned that perhaps something worse has happened to this guard than him having to wake up with a headache. Um, Because we don't see the extent of the guard's injury because the frame cuts off part of his head. Right. And there is no shortage of real murder, real homicide, true uh, scary violence in this in this issue. So I don't, I don't doubt it. D as we'll see later really is uh, a sociopath. And in fact, we're going to get some of that really here on this same page. Cause outside uh, he's gotten out of the, out of Arkham asylum and D stops a woman who's driving a car. And uh, he is now going to make her drive him to the Ruby's location. Uh, that's really all we see here. We, we're going to take a, a detour to another scene, but we, we finish this part of the, the issue with a panel of him holding, a gun holding this gun right up against the face of this young woman also he appears to be naked but for the amulet slash looks like being held as a bracelet on the one wrist and the gun so kind of a terrifying almost zombie like appearance right this really is the stuff that nightmares are made of and and that's going to turn out to be literally true as we as we get into this we uh we leave d behind right now we are going to take this detour and we find ourselves in a dream and this dream is deeply connected to the DC Comics universe, but just like with Scarecrow, Gaiman doesn't signal that to the uninitiated, but we are seeing here a dream that is something of a memory, and it is the the childhood escape from what is called a terror orphanage by the superhero Mr. Miracle, uh, and this is on the, the planet Apocalypse. Uh, this this is uh, where we're going to need, I think, an awful lot of explication from you, Brent, so can you give us kind of the backstory here and maybe even just walk us through what this dream is about in the early 70s 1971 jack kirby having become very frustrated with the way he felt he was being treated in regards to recognition for work he had done at marvel ended up bringing a bunch of ideas to dc uh the rival large publisher for superhero comics and created a number of comics in what were considered the Jack Kirby fourth world setting. So the new gods, as he, as he put it. So on the one side you had 
High Father ruling over New Genesis, which was this wonderful, pleasant world where goodness reigned. Uh, and in contrast to that, you had the world of Apocalypse ruled by Darkseid, who is this DC villain of galactic proportions. And Scott Free, also known as Mr. Miracle, is kind of caught between these two because there was um, a kind of hostage negotiation that occurred for an uneasy peace between the worlds of Genesis, a new Genesis and Apocalypse, in which Darkseid's son, Orion, was given to High Father to be raised on New Genesis, while High Father's son, who has been dubbed Scott Free, kind of as a joke, was given as a prisoner hostage to be raised in Apocalypse. And the way he was raised in Apocalypse was to be put through these terrible series of elaborate tortures and um, variety of traps that he had to escape. And it was all administered under the view of Granny Goodness. Granny Goodness was this character who served for Apocalypse and trained a lot of his elite forces, but also was a big plague for everyone who was not terrible, even those who were. She's the one who ran these terror orphanages. So is is Granny Goodness basically torturing children in order to turn them into like vicious special forces soldiers for dark side? Is that what's happening here? Yeah, that's exactly what she does. Also, because she enjoys it. It's not just <laughs> because of the utility of it. Um, she enjoys torturing people. She enjoys treating people bad and teaching them just harsh lessons in which they will then be better prepared or better damaged, perhaps, to think nothing of also giving out harshness on their own and and being just as terrible to those who they may come across as Granny kind of was to them, kind of repaying in kind within the totalitarian state of Apocalypse as well as as Apocalypse engaged in its intergalactic kind of warfare writ large throughout the universe. And this this dream that we we get here is really kind of this this memory of 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 Scott Free escaping from Granny Goodness but it's it it goes on for for four pages it's a very long very elaborate dream can and and we see a lot of detail here can you can you just walk us through this dream and kind of point out what what it is that's really happening here yeah, so at first he's he's alone walking down um, a long street, uh, and then he is completely bound in chains and a series of padlocks with uh, guns of various kinds, ray guns and other things kind of pointed at him, and then it cuts to him being loaded in a kind of metal lung contraption um, and being shoved into it by other children, um, which I think is one of the more terrifying images, Is is not just like folks off screen holding him at gunpoint or machines acting unto their own, but that you have kind of vicious bully children who are either because they wish or because they're being compelled by granny goodness to also torture him. Uh, but then you see him breaking free of this kind of uh, mechanism right before a laser beam looks like it's firing off. And then he's trying to work his way over a fire pit spike trap and, then there's just an explosion, but he happens to be hanging to the edge of uh, a cliff. Um, but eventually when he does push his way free and he seems to be alone, um, he then sees some of his um, fellow orphanage dwellers um, have been killed and 
placed on giant spikes lining some kind of a wall, um, including a young woman who was his first love, who was left there hanging for perhaps intentionally to torture him as much as to torture her. Well, in, in the dream, as, as it's closing out, we actually see Dream himself appear and, and catch the child scot-free as he's like falling onto some sharp blades like off of like a, a cliff or something. And he calms him down and, and wakes him up. And then we're in the waking world in Scott's bedroom in the New York embassy of the Justice League International. Uh, we'll talk more about the JLI in a few pages. Uh, but I think something that's interesting to, to note here is that he does have a photograph of a woman next to him. I, I, I wondered if that was orally or if that was some other woman. I, I don't think it's clear in the art who it is in, in either case, but I wondered if you had a reading of that. No, I think that's Big Barda, who at this time already is his wife, um, who was one of the female Furies trained by Granny Goodness as um, kind of elite shock troops for Darkseid uh, on behalf of Apocalypse and Darkseid. So she escaped to uh, Earth as well and met up with him, and then they fell in love. Um, and she was affiliated with um, the Justice League International um, around the same time that Mr. Miracle was. They're kind of a, a twofer in that way. It's just easier if your spouse and you uh, happen to have a job at the same place, or at least the excuse to live in the same place. Well, that that makes a lot more sense and is actually then a really nice, really sweet touch here that we get to see this in his room. And what's, what's going on in this scene is that Dream announces that he would like the JLI's help in retrieving his ruby, but this scene is kind of cut cut off in the middle of the thing as well. And so we're going to return now to, to John D and his carjacking victim. And there's a, a classic poor misunderstood criminal trope here. The, the woman at first is really scared of D because you know, he's a, a, a naked looking zombie and he's got a gun. He's quite scary. And she actually threatens him in return by claiming that her husband is a, a mafia hitman. But D is actually polite to her, and he seems to really not want to hurt her if he can avoid it. So eventually she actually comes to, to pity him, and this is you know, a classic trope here. And, and she, she even asks about his nakedness, and he explains about what an awful place Arkham Asylum is. And she gives D a coat. Of her as a coat of her husband's that she has in the back of the car. And this is not going to end well, but I will say that all of this worked on me as well. I, I really felt like, at least at this moment, I felt like John D is clearly a, a, a victim himself, that his villainy is something that has happened to him rather than something that he chose. So that, that may not be really true. That's certainly how it feels here. When we first cut back to D riding in the car with this woman, there's a lot of interesting work that I think the art is doing. There's only one word balloon in these three panels, and it's just him telling her when to turn left. But it shows D statically holding the gun at her. It almost never moves. The gun is imperceptibly moving at all, if at all, between the frames. But D himself, his head is kind of moving around, and he's staring around, and there's this wide-open star field above them. And... When I first read this, I almost read it in kind of a carefree, kind of he's a lost child and doesn't know where he is, and he's just kind of confused and and not quite as sure kind of where to go. But looking back on it after a second reading recently of it um, and how things eventually turn out, I noticed the unflinching way in which he's holding the gun and was thinking a lot more how terrifying it was for her to try to figure out why this man, what he wants 
I actually sped up in my mind how quickly this panel plays out. Where if he's just someone whose head, like a child, kind of looking out at its stars, is kind of slowly, wistfully looking around the sky, versus erratically shifting back and forth. Um, and I think it can be a very terrifying, depending on how quickly you read these panels uh, next to each other. Well, I definitely have the sense that they're, they're actually going for quite a long ride, though I don't know why I have that sense. And it's interesting. There's, I think there is something in the art that that suggests that we do get some some images uh, later of sort of a big road, and we do see their their scenery changing. And and also in this scene, we do actually get the title page here, which is this just this beautiful picture of a, a woody road in the eastern U.S. somewhere, uh, you know, outside of Gotham, and it's it's late at night, and they seem to be you know pretty uh, uh, alone, and it seems really desolate. So there really isn't anyone that she can call to for help. It seems as well reminds me of some of the horror type uh, tropes we've seen play out in the Sandman comics as well as kind of a throwback to the way the art often looks in Alan Moore's run of the Swamp Thing, which sets kind of this um, standard very much for um, the way horror with kind of the superhero world can kind of play together in the DC continuity. Um, and I think that the car driving by itself on the road with the woods overhanging strikes me as very different from what we get one panel later where we have a very cold extensive computer screens and switches and knobs um, with Scott Free and Dream sitting there trying to check through databases of information and it's it, it's a very different world of the ultra clean very digital well maybe analog computing almost going on here <laughs> versus um, what we just had, which is more of a, almost an American Gothic look of the car on the lone highway um, with kind of these plant life, just kind of, being the only silent witness to the terror that is going on. Well, I like this contrast, and I think American Gothic is really the the best way to describe this. I think it's really a brilliant observation. I actually want to skip over the the panel with Scott Free here. I want to or the page with Scott Free. I'm going to come back to it, but I do want to jump ahead just to cover kind of the the next bit that we have of their their road trip because this this also is another short scene, but it reinforces this this growing sympathy, and we do get some more shots that are really interesting here. We get uh, driving by like an abandoned drive-in theater that's at one point anyway had played the night of the living dead so there's even some some zombie jokes there and we we learn here that this woman is a, a nurse and she is genuinely concerned about how awful john d looks and she thinks that this is probably the result of aids but john d doesn't know what aids is because he's been in the asylum and I found this scene really interesting because it you know reminds us reminded me anyway that AIDS was really new in 1989 and it was extraordinarily scary and people were worried that they might get it somehow people were unclear about how it was transmitted or at least the general populace was and you know just reading this issue I had this real vivid memory of thinking about sort of really where I was when this comic issue was was first published. And we were in fifth grade still at this point. But I remember that later in 1989, in the fall, I guess when we were in sixth grade, that uh, my grade school had an assembly to address AIDS and to tell the student population, you know, how it can be contracted. And this was all about alleviating our fears of like trading food at lunch and uh, bumping into each other, you know, on the kickball field at recess and and such. And I had kind of forgotten 
how terrifying this was for lots of people at this time. And, you, you know, you and I went to different schools at this point, but you must have had something like this, too. Yeah, I think I did have a similar assembly. It was the same school district, so I think we probably had the same mandated stuff. It was probably even the same presenters who came and talked to us. But it's interesting here, in the context of horror stories and the way that John Dee is represented here, he very much reminds me of the visage of what you'd expect from the story, The Mask of the Red Death or something, where if he were somehow the personification of AIDS and the terribleness come from it, but not at all. That's not what's going on. So um, this reference very much kind of clues in with how out of touch with contemporary um, culture John Dee's character is. It also highlights the fact that there's awareness of AIDS. It also has, though, that she, as a nurse, is riding with someone who she thinks perhaps does have AIDS because she doesn't know what's wrong with him. But while she is terrified, she is not depicted as terrified of him physically getting near her. So perhaps this is also kind of a an opportunity to educate the reader that you're not going to get AIDS from being in a car with someone. You know, she's not trying to run for reasons of him having AIDS. She's scared of him because he is someone who got out of the asylum and has a gun pointed at her. Right. And and actually, even at this point, the, the gun is no longer pointed at her. John D has set the gun down on the dashboard, and it's clearly in reach of her in several panels here while she is expressing this concern about his, his health. And it's clear that she is at this point, kind of on board, like she wants to help him. She has at this point taken complete pity on him, whether or not he actually has AIDS. She now wants to do something good for this person who she thinks uh, has, has been a victim somehow. And I had missed actually, until you just mentioned it, that this early, they did show the gun sitting on the dash line. I think you're right. And, and I think part of the reason was, is because two panels later, he looks so pitiful with this kind of greenish-hued overcoat with, like, a pink with blue-striped scarf thing going <laughs> on. He just, he again looks like a frightened and confused child, which in some ways, per, you know, perhaps he is. So he talks about his mother and his relationship to her, and he looks very much like a frightened child who, you know, his mother didn't approve of him, so he took on a different name rather than doing something that would cause her to not, you know, love him quite as much. Let's go back a page here and 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 now handle kind of the the Justice League segment of this of this story. So uh, Scott Free is using the Justice League International's computer files, possibly analog here, uh, to see if he can locate Dream's ruby. And there are in fact some records of the ruby. We see a, a photo of Doctor Destiny holding it, and the ruby is also listed as as having been kept in the trophy room on the satellite. But that satellite has now been destroyed, and so the the ruby could really be in one of any number of other locations. And Scott Free's solution here is to go find a member of the JLI who was in the old Justice League of America. And we'll get there in another few pages. But I think that this is a good time to put ourselves back in your hands, Brent, for some more DC Comics lore. Can you tell us about the Justice League International and the Justice League of America and what their relationship is? 
So as far as I'm aware, the Justice League International is the only Justice League that had official bathrobes, <laughs> at least depicted in the comics. And I very much wish that I could have one, particularly if it said which embassy it was from, maybe underneath the letters. But uh, the Justice League of America was first from Brave and the Bold, number 28, from 1960. It's had lots of members over time and, and variations of who was involved. Originally, it was... Aquaman, Batman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Superman, and Wonder Woman. So these were the big kind of heavy hitters of the DC continuity. And those of us who grew up on 1980s cartoons from Justice League will remember these are who we saw along with Hawkman and others at the Hall of Justice. But there's lots of iterations where people kind of came and went from the Justice League. This was necessary for keeping the continuity of the DC universe in part because if you've got a storyline where Superman is away dealing with Kryptonian things in a far-flung galaxy, then he can't be a member of a group that gets together every so often in a clubhouse. Similarly, you can tell different stories with different kind of characters and based on different levels of power. So at their height, they had this satellite, which is referenced here, and they would use teleporters to transit back and forth and, you know, Star Trek-style teleporters to go back and forth between Earth. And they would sit there as kind of sentinels to deal with big catastrophic things. But then later, they were a fairly low-powered team that was trying to deal with street-level drug problems in Detroit. And they lived in a place called The Bunker, which was just a kind of abandoned warehouse in Detroit. Other times, they were in a cave on an island off of Rhode Island, and it just varying levels of who was involved. So this is where Scott Free is determining, well, there was something in the trophy room. In the trophy room, most people remember seeing images from the Bat Cave where he has the giant penny or the T-Rex. Similarly, other people keep trophies from villains they've captured where it could be their weapons, and partially it's because you don't want that kind of weapon to be something easily accessible. But also, it's because you want a trophy, and you want to remember that. And it's a good way also then in comics language to kind of give throwbacks to the reader of like, oh yeah, remember that comic you read long, long ago? Well, you know, here's the giant penny from that time that Batman had to run on a giant penny. Um, or there's little Easter eggs sometimes that are put in there. Um, there's one uh, comic, Batman comic, I think from... The early aughts in which there's a case with all of the weapons to defeat everyone who he has plans. He's Batman, so he's plans to defeat everyone, including his fellow members of the Justice League. And so there's a collection of weaponry. And in that case, among other things, is a Dalek. <laughs> so he is prepared if the doctor shows up from Doctor Who that he would be able to maybe use the Dalek to defeat the doctor if Oh, that's great. And we're actually going to see a room of these trophies in this issue. And I'm already planning to ask you to uh, to walk us through there to, to show us what these things are and, and what, what Easter eggs might be in there. So how do we go from the Justice League of America to the Justice League International? What's that all about? So at a certain point, they're 
just kind of ceased being a Justice League. And around the early 80s, the editorial board decided to take a slightly different approach. And so they had a character in continuity decide, you know what we need is we need an officially sanctioned group that can work worldwide and have a presence everywhere. Because again, this is synchronizing with kind of the end of the Cold War. So, um, so there was the creation of the Justice League International, partially as a marketing scheme, partially as an actual attempt to create kind of a new a world order that it would have the Justice League kind of participating on the world stage and not just concerning themselves with isolationist American issues. Um, so you had the stand-up of embassies in a bunch of places, and you then you had Justice League America, which was the Justice League International crew who were in the embassy uh, in probably Metropolis or in New York, because in DC continuity, there's Metropolis, there's also New York, there's also Gotham. And then you also had like a Paris office and a London office. And so I believe Mr. Miracle and his wife Big Barda were more often associated with Justice League Europe, which the comic that they were in, I believe, was the Justice League International or JLI, um, along with others. The Justice League International and the Justice League comics of this time also were very kind of high on camp and kind of humor. And there was a lot of great bits in there kind of making fun of uh, superhero tropes and just uh, also just having kind of jokey interactions. Well, we do get actually some some jokes here in with the Justice League stuff. Some, you know, there's a nice joke about about keeping Oreos in the house. So let, let's get there. Let's go catch up with the member of the JLI who is actually going to be able to help us find the Ruby. So Scott Free takes Dream to the apartment of the Martian Manhunter, who is in fact wearing one of these uh, JLI bathrobes when he answers the door. And I'll just remind you, Brent, that the uh, the uh, Cotton anniversary is the two-year anniversary. So perhaps, perhaps when this show is having its second anniversary, its cotton anniversary, there may be a uh, uh, a JLI uh, DC bathrobe uh, in it for you. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll we'll see if I, that's a thing I can get done. Well, the the Martian Manhunter is a Martian. He's a he's a non-human, and he's the the last of his race. And when he sees Dream here, he he crouches down in a a gesture of subservience, and he addresses Dream as Lord Lazoril, uh, which is I guess Martian for Dream or something like that. And he even praise here and it's it's something that seems like a traditional martian prayer that he's invoking here not something he's just uh thinking of uh you know on on the spot or composing on the spot and the art changes as well dream looks different to a martian and this is all really great because in the last issue we saw that dream has different names and different appearances in various human cultures. And here we see that this extends to the non-human cultures in the DC universe as well. And I really love this touch. You know, I really love this. And I have a lot of questions then that are never answered about the mythology of Martian gods. Because here we have kind of what you'd expect in perhaps a prayer to a dream lord. May you guard us in darkness and on the pathway between waking hours. Okay, I would normally think to say that, perhaps, if there was a personification of a dream god in front of me. And protect us in dreams from the flame of your wrath. Okay, now we've gone into weird kind of dualism of how terrible, I guess, nightmares can be. Um, The flame of wrath in this context, I should note, 
Martian Manhunter is extremely powerful. Um, he has more superpowers than Superman does. Um, he is almost as strong in many tellings of the tale, but he also has telepathy and can form himself to look different ways. The anthropomorphic view that, uh, look that he has here where he has kind of a rounded head is not actually what Martians look like. It's just the way he's decided to look to make it easier for us. Um, he can make himself though not appear green if he wants to blend in so he can change shape to some extent telepathy uh flight superpowers of all kinds uh but he's martians are very vulnerable to flame and so here the thing that he fears most is also the thing that is associated at least in part with what this dream god of lord lazoral can bring to people which i guess is that could be just kind of the harshness of nightmares but that's a quick jump to go to of like i suppose if you want to properly pray and acknowledge the power and also the possible terror and fury then that maybe is the way to do it the image here that he sees or the way the way that dream appears to the the martian is covered in flames as well i mean it looks downright demonic and you know i suppose that if if you're telepathic then having visions of any kind whether they're they're dreams or nightmares is a big deal that can really alter your perception of reality so nightmares actually are perhaps uh or scary visions anyway are, are perhaps something to really be feared uh by this telepathic species so that is really interesting and there is a you know a phrase here at, at uh, when when dream leaves and the martian manhunter is kind of filling scott free in on who that actually was scott free asks he, he describes him as an old god uh, a very old god uh, which is not exactly a phrase from hp lovecraft but just kind of invokes the sense of hp lovecraft's old ones, uh, as if this is uh, some kind of supernatural being that really stands outside of time uh, and is is uber powerful and is maybe even wrapped up in the way that the universe itself works, which is true. And it is interesting here because to here and it, and it is interesting here that we get the sense that dream is perhaps more important in the Martian's conception of the ordering of the universe than maybe it is for us as humans. Yeah, and we've seen some of this before, where dream kind of as something that exists far as far older than kind of other things that we might see in mythology, and we'll see more of that play out. Um, also, there a name is ascribed to him in this case from Martian Manhunter, but Martian Manhunter, even when explaining who that is, didn't doesn't say, "Oh, well, that's you know Lord Lazoral." He says, "No, no, that's an old god." And so the name may not be the important thing so much as the role and function that, you know, Lord Lazoral slash Dream kind of plays. Martian Manhunter does tell Dream, though, that uh, the particular items he's looking for are likely in storage in a town called Mayhew um, that is in upstate Gotham. I don't recall if I've heard Gotham referred to oftentimes as a state so much as a city. I was surprised by this. I've read a lot of Batman comics, but I think this is the first time I've ever noticed this as well. And I, I wondered if this was uh, kind of an invention of Gaiman's. And, and this here definitely is putting it in as that New York substitute where there's New York, the city, and then there's upstate New York, New York, the, the state. Uh, so, yeah, I just wondered if this was just kind of an assumption that Gaiman made and it just stands here. Yeah, it, it's very strange because I don't recall that being before. And, and 
the geography in the DC universe is a complex thing, and it's best not thinking too much about these things. But Gotham is likely either in exactly where we think New York is, or New York City, that is, or it's somewhere in New Jersey, or it's somewhere like in Delaware. Either way, though, it would not be – we wouldn't expect to see senators from Gotham. We would expect to see senators from whatever state Gotham is in, say, um, in the U.S. Congress. So, um, yeah, it's it's strange. But it does tell us, though, that there's not that long, perhaps, that that car ride really needs to be, which we weren't entirely sure before. Um, how long John D would need to be in the car for this woman? Would it need to be days? Um, would it need to be weeks? Um, but it looks like if it's just somewhere relative to Gotham, then uh, Arkham already being usually depicted as slightly outside Gotham, Gotham's city limits, um, it may not be that far that they have to go. Right, and and we're actually going to get there in the the next scene. Right, we're back in the car with John D now, who we see is arriving at the the town of Mayhew. So we know at this point that we are destined for a showdown. That both John D and Dream are descending on this town basically at the same time. And 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 this is where D gives us some more of his backstory. This is where he, he talks about how his mother made him use a nickname for his criminal enterprises. And one of the things that he says here about this is that uh, D, uh, D stands for a lot of things, death, dust, darkness, and demons. And this is also, uh, at least to the reader, this is a joke, right? This is funny because all of the endless have names that begin with D as well. Death is one of them. Dust, darkness, demons are not. But I, I thought this was really quite funny. It also, in some ways, he is or was kind of a stand-in by using the, the ruby and the power of Dream. But when Dream was imprisoned, he was another person who took on the role of Dream kind of in his absence, kind of the more the nightmare role. But in some ways, he was the personification of it. Even the way that like Wesley Dodds, who fought crime by knocking people out and sprinkling dust in their eyes um, because the universe kind of abhors a vacuum, right? Or they knew something kind of was wrong. And so these other people kind of stood up and took on kind of aspects of dream or Sandman in his absence. And in this way, perhaps also John D kind of stood in for some of the more terrifying, f maybe not functions, but kind of, filled a little bit of the vacuum left by kind of the terror that maybe the realm of dream would otherwise provide. And we get some very cool metaphysics here, some important information about the metaphysics of this speculative world. Uh, you know, this car ride here, at this point, D is starting to give some monologues, and these get increasingly more villainous and also increasingly more interesting as the episode goes. And so what he tells us here is that even though dreams are not made of matter or, or particles, they're still very real. They're they're made of, of viewpoints, of images, of memories and puns and lost hopes. I love this idea. I love the idea that just because our thoughts and emotions aren't tangible, that doesn't make them less real, right? They're not illusions and they're not ephemeral. They're, uh, you know, a part, they are something that is real in, in the, the world. And I think this emphasizes, you know, what you're just pointing out here about Dr. D or John D filling this 
role, you know, kind of taking a, taking on some bit of Sandman's or Dream's function here during his imprisonment and mastering what dreams are and uh, building uh, machines in order to use the ruby to do things with dreams. And yeah, I think you're right to see this as a juxtaposition with Wesley Dodds, who's doing good things that dreams do uh, or, or using dreams for good. And John D, Dr. Destiny, who's using nightmares for evil. I guess like, a, I, th- I think that's a really awesome observation. And there's also some great kind of throwbacks to 17th and 18th and 19th, more so probably late 19th and early 20th century visions of kind of particularly pulp visions, but even just kind of understandings of the mixture of bringing kind of scientific application but trying to basically use it to perform magic or vice versa. The idea that he's got this magical ruby and the ruby he's going to inject flaws into and he's going to irradiate it and he's going to detach circuitry. And it's just like, you know, it, it's very much uh, reminds me of weird science where you're going to take a scanner and you're going to scan images and you're going to suck power, but also you're going to do some incantations. It's, there's some good old techno shamanry kind of going on here in an early 90s parlance. Right. And and we even have here some resentment that D harbors at, at other scientists who scorned him by calling him a black magician. And he says that that's not true, right? He always was doing science and he he. he says that he is a hermetic philosopher, which is a, a, a term that really can be used to kind of blend magic and science, uh, which were things that maybe actually weren't all that distinct from each other in early modernity, which is then wrapped up with the real historical figure of John Dee. So we'll so we'll explicate more of that in the the next episode. But there's something something else we get here is is you know we we learn also about the the ruby about what it is and how it functions. And I find this very cool. Also, the the ruby is a solid dream. And what it does is it translates dreams into matter and it forces them to take on forms that are recognizable in the waking world. And it also can control dreams in their raw state. And so this is an extremely powerful tool. In fact, right now, this to me seems like it's the most important of dreams tools that might not turn out to be true, but it seems overpowered. Uh, compared to the other tools. Yeah, and it could be that that's partially why he's left it to last, because he wanted to make sure that he um, had kind of the easier bits to acquire. He had mentioned that he thought the pouch would be easy to get back, partially because it was just with a normal human, and he didn't understand what superhumans were, partially because he didn't have to go to hell for it. But the fact that he went to hell first for his helm and kept the ruby for last... There's something there um, in terms of kind of relative power. Um, and it's interesting, there's even a panel earlier where Scott Free is at the com- J- JLI computer terminal and Dream is kind of tucking his mask under his arm. And I think it's one of the few times we actually see the helm either not on his head or just being held at like a loft in a hand. It seems that normally he just kind of tucks it in the folds of his cloak or some kind of extra dimensional pocket or something. But here it's actually him holding it as his badge of office, which I think is kind of a funny image. But the ruby seems to be something that's far more powerful. Um, and you know, it's been seen throughout time as this thing in Justice League America comics and other places where the character of Dr. Destiny, John D, has appeared. It's had varying powers over time to do things. And so part of this is an acknowledgement of what it's done, but also that it's done very different things over time. 
Well, now it is it is time for the climax of this issue. It's really time for what might end up being here, a showdown between Dream and John D. Uh, Dream travels through the, the dreams of a number of people as a means of getting to Mayhew. And uh, this is where we actually get some information about the location of of Gotham. He has to travel through Delaware to get there. So I don't know, maybe Gotham state is carved out of West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. I don't know, something like that. But dream ultimately emerges from the the dream of a sleeping security guard at this storage facility. And before we get to the action, we get this great panel of the interior of the storage locker. And this is where we see all these old trophies of the Justice League of America. There's a giant tentacle. There's some kind of large mammal suspended from the ceiling. There are two massive busts. One of them is a robot. Uh, and it also looks like maybe Mr. Freeze is there too. Uh, Brent, I really want you to walk us through this and tell us what these trophies are. Well, and I'm not even sure what all of them are. The ones I could identify, the tentacle looks like it's maybe from a Starro who's a giant jellyfish in the sky. But <laughs> sometimes there are smaller starfish from it, and it kind of latches onto people's faces, kind of like a face hugger with the one eye sticking out and kind of uses it. It, it can control your mind at that point. Um, and so that looks like it maybe is part of that. The cow, I'm not sure about. The robot uh, is a Mazo, who is a, a robotic villain who the Justice League occasionally has had to fight who's incredibly tough um so it's kind of strange that he's just kind of in this storage locker and if the justice league fails to pay on time for the bill for the storage locker hopefully they own hopefully you know wayne enterprises or queen enterprises or someone else owns this land because if accidentally they stop paying rent or it gets sold i can imagine a really strange episode of storage wars where like everyone's like well this used to be owned by wayne enterprises and we expect inside you're gonna find who knows what because wayne enterprises does all kinds of things it may just be paper products but then you end up finding a robot with the ability to perhaps try to conquer the world. Yeah, there's there are some weird things going on here right, with the kind of concept of this of this storage facility. And you know, this is the second time in three issues that Dream has been in a storage facility. Like this is all he has seen of of the waking world is people's storage <laughs> facilities. So I don't know if Gaming is obsessed with storage facilities at this point, or if I don't know the 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 storage storage facility lobby was giving some money to dc here but it's interesting how much of the action is is taking place in these storage facilities and of course what really matters is that the ruby is here in this facility it's tucked away in a crate and dream gets it and as he's putting it on it it radiates with its power but it actually hurts dream it it seems to burn him i guess and it, it definitely knocks him out and he is lying on the floor unconscious when we switch to d's perspective so that, uh, as you said, the ruby seems to react negatively to him. And, and there's kind of this like weird mechanical kind of things pinging off of things image. And I can't tell if the evil eyes that are looking out from it or because it's been corrupted or if those are just normal nightmares that he thinks are good. And that's what he expects to see looking into it. But we do cut to almost like terror in his eyes. And then he's screaming in pain before he's knocked out. Whatever John D did when he irradiated it and attached circuitry and all the things that he discussed 
uh, in the car ride with the nurse, that has apparently turned into something that has safeguards to protect it from Dream being able to reclaim it or perhaps anyone being able to use or touch it, which again seems like a very dangerous item to be also leaving around. What if a guard is like, oh, there's a ruby. I'm going to pick it up. Would this happen to anyone or is it because Dream, like, it recognized the power in Dream? And we're going to find out actually in just a, a panel that there is some still there, that there is still some relationship between Dream and this Ruby that they maybe have a special relationship, and so this might not necessarily happen to the guard. Uh, well, well, yeah, and and I'm excited actually to get there. Is this all this this information is going to come in uh, some really great speeches by John D. and who's pulls up right now in the the car. He's outside the storage facility and. He and uh, the the woman he's held captive, her name is Rosemary, by the way, they they exchange pleasant farewells. And Rosemary here reveals that her husband is not actually a hitman. He's just a high school teacher. So, you know, nothing to be afraid of. And now John D. shoots Rosemary. And of course, you know, we knew that this was going to happen. He was polite and maybe he didn't want to cause her pain, but he is a sociopath and he is bent on world domination. And so... This is just in his nature. People aren't going, they don't matter to him. Yeah. And it's really sad how this happens to her because she's at this point kind of smiling. She leans out the car as she's talking to him and he says, you know, is your boyfriend really a hitman?" And she said, no, I just said that. And, you know, at this point, you know, there's a Stockholm syndrome thing going on where she partially by trying to manipulate him into being nicer to her, but then um, at kind of warming up to him and feeling some kinship of, you know, best of luck to this guy who held me at gunpoint. He's out of my car, but I'm going to go ahead in the rain and have the window rolled down and hang out to talk to him versus speeding his way as fast as possible while ducking, which is what I would be doing. And unfortunately, then she meets a, a terrible fate. It's really tragic. And, and we see when he comes back out of the storage facility, we actually get this image of him just walking casually by her, uh, hanging out of the, the car, you know, slumped over, I mean, dead, you know, there's there's some blood there as well. And he doesn't even seem to notice her as he walks by. She doesn't exist to him at this point. I mean, he has the ruby back and that's that's part of what's going on here. And, and maybe we should talk about how he gets the ruby or what happens here. He, he enters the storage facility. He finds Dream on the floor with the ruby next to him. And here he gives us this nice villainous monologue and explains that the ruby is connected to him now and can't be used by anyone else, not even by its creator, not even by Dream. But he also says that the ruby feels more powerful. And so this is where it's clear that it's been recharged in some way by its brief physical contact with dream. And uh, so I think it is also clear that things are not going to go well when this story continues in the next issue. Yeah. And he just walks right past, not only when he's exiting, does he walk past the, the, the nurse and, and not care about her body? He walks past dreams body and doesn't particularly pay mind to him. Um, we don't see the poor guard, but we hopefully he is just asleep and getting wet and nothing else as bad as happening to him. I um, mean, at this point, I think it's hard for me not to think about Gollum in relationship to the ring where while Gollum is a twisted kind of, you know, wicked creature, as long as he's got the ring, that's what he's solely focused on is get the ring and versus like do evil thing with the ring. He just wants to have ring and then leave, at least for what we've got depicted in these panels. We might see next issue where things take a turn for far worse than already we have here. 
but just the single-mindedness of he wants his precious back. There's his precious. He has his precious back. You know, did the poor man try to take it from me? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I, I have the precious back. And he even visibly changes, like his eyes change, he's, his facial expressions change once he has this back in his possession. I also think that there's a correlation between his monologuing and his, his, uh, his loquaciousness. He almost becomes a more verbal person, a more eloquent person. They're closer and closer. They are getting to the ruby. And then once he has it back in his possession, now he's making just full on uh, elaborate and elegant and eloquent uh, villainous monologues, right? Now that he's got it back, it's as if he has been incomplete with without it. I mean, that there is a clear metaphor here of of, of addiction, uh, maybe much in the same way that, that, you know, we could say about about the ring as well. Well, we are we are looking ahead to what he is going to do with this ruby, which I am very excited about. But we have an epilogue that uh, that teases that a little bit before we uh, finish here, a sort of a one page epilogue where D is at an all night diner and he is talking to his ruby. And here again, he's still making these speeches. And this one I think is really awesome. He says, go, my little love, touch the world, eat their hearts and poison their dreams, rip their nightmares into the daylight and scum their sleep with creeping fear. This is some real Lovecraftian stuff here. It's it's awesome. But I also really love getting scum used as a verb. I do not do that enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone does that quite enough. So, um, scum as a verb, uh, I'll try to find a, some excuse to use that in conversation. I really don't know where, but I will, I'll try to find, uh, an attempt and then see if Pee Wee jumps out with Cherry to yell excitedly that I've used the word of the day. <laughs> well, yeah, I think this is a great challenge. I think that uh, we could pose to our listeners and take on ourselves to try to try to find a way to casually use scum as a verb uh, such that it, no one actually really quite uh, is alarmed by the fact that you have you have done it. Uh, tell us your stories about how you've managed to do this. And this is really interesting in his speech because it's on the one hand, he's, he's telling it to do something, but he's also telling it as if it understands that it's not that the ruby is kind of a, a living thing unto itself and not just a tool. And it's not clear whether that's because he's aware of something in terms of the eyes that Dream saw in it or some way that either it always has been or that he's corrupted it or if it's because he's a crazy person who uh, has a very diluted understanding of himself in the world and therefore is ascribing this personification to this item that doesn't exist. And it's him who's really going to be doing these terrible things, not just the ruby that he is told to do the things. He's distancing himself from some of the culpability, perhaps, uh, at least for part of his mind to think, no, the Ruby's doing these things. But yeah, and the, and the last line of this issue even reinforces this. Right? D explains to the the server at this diner that he just wants to drink a cup of coffee while he waits for the end of the world. So he really is distancing himself from having any more agency or any more culpability in this. Right? He's given this thing some instructions. It's going to go do its thing. He's just going to drink a cup of coffee while that happens, which I guess is a good job if you can get it. Uh, but you know, it's definitely setting up uh, some some questions that we're going to have to get answered in the next issue. Well, before we get to that next issue, let's talk about the cover, the the title, and pick out our favorite panels as we usually do. And I 
I had an immediate question about this cover. This cover, this Dave McKean cover, is really cool. Brent, is this Dr. D with the machine that he's using for the ruby? Is that what this image is? I think it's actually Scott Free. It's him as a small boy, Mr. Miracle, trapped on Apocalypse because he's bound in the chains. And the circuitry is attached to him, and it might be partially a torture device. Also, in the comics, Mr. Miracle has a the Mother Box, which is the pseudo-magical, the scientific thing that allows characters um, throughout uh, Jack Kirby's fourth world bits of the DC continuity to create boom tubes called boom tubes because there's a giant resounding boom when they open, but basically gateways to portal themselves around um, the universe um, and also helps with complex calculations and can do other things, um, sometimes generate force fields or even other things. But um, these mother boxes, uh, Mr. Miracles actually, instead of being a cube that he carries around and puts in a pouch, which is oftentimes the case with uh, these characters, he actually works the circuitry into his costume into the um the mask that he wears and into his uh the rest of his costume so i think that it could be a reference partially to the boom tube partially this could be kind of a torture device and i think here we have a boy um where there's kind of the bruised eye it looks like in the cover art um and i think that this is supposed to be the character of scott free but i also think that in some ways this is perhaps also sort of analogous to John D and it's the juxtaposition of these things. And it's perhaps gets into our conversation about the title, even of passengers kind of the putting the Scott free character who has been imprisoned and, you know, managed to escape and become a superhero versus John D who as a child decides eventually to be a super villain um, and then gets imprisoned kind of, at the end of his life um, in Arkham, where he is bound up and uh, perhaps experimented on, perhaps not. But then also he's playing with circuitry to do some of his hermetic science uh, with the ruby and otherwise. It's, it's, it, it, it could be this is a stand image for both of them. But uh, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, so now that I'm, I'm looking at it more carefully here, it, I, I see that there actually are some letters in the, the circuitry here. And in fact, Scott Free appears uh, in those letters. And in fact, Dave McKean's name is is here as well, which I think is the first time that we've had that in any of the, the cover images. But I, I really like this connection that you're making uh, with the, the this image and, and the title, because, you know, the title of this episode passengers. I mean, it's clear, right? John D is a literal passenger in, in this car. Dream also is a passenger in people's dreams. That is how they both get to this storage facility in upstate Gotham. That, But it hadn't occurred to me that, that Scott Free, Mr. Miracle, uh, and also even the Martian Manhunter, uh, they're interesting choices for being the members of the Justice League that Dream talks to, because they are aliens who have traveled to to earth and and both have um maybe not always been the drivers in their own stories right that they have gotten to earth because other people have made uh, have made decisions that have greatly affected their life and yeah so almost everyone that we meet in this story is in in some way uh, not really in the driver's seat i hadn't thought about it quite that way Let's talk about our favorite panels here. And I'll, I'll kick this one to you uh, on this episode first, Brent. What was your favorite panel? 
I think my favorite panel had to be on page 18. Um, I could cheat and say it's the whole page where it's the splash of dream, um, transiting through all of the bits of dream to, to get where he's going. But honestly, it's just the middle streak from the bottommost left corner to the up right corner, um, in which we have him on the train traveling, uh, in which he's hearing a, or actually bus rather. Um, traveling by bus in which he, the dreamer is copulating in the background. It's not so much the copulation in the background is who is driving, but a pumpkin ha- uh, headed man with a big top hat and a big cigar joint, something he's smoking. And it's not identified as such here, but I think this is probably the first appearance of Marvin Pumpkinhead, who is a character that we'll see later in the Sandman comics and who is a uh, favorite of mine and many other fans. Um, and so that image, um, but again, also the only person who is fully fleshed out in color on this page is Dream. Uh, Marvin is just might as well be in black and white or um, black and kind of a reddish pinkish color, uh, at least in the coloration that I'm currently looking at. Uh, so th- because of the appearance of a character later, I think that has to be my panel, which is kind of a cheat. So I did spot him here, and I'll, I'll say that this is not my favorite panel, but I did strongly consider it because there's some amazing stuff happening here. Uh, we get dream in the 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 section just below this kind of standing on the the prow of a of a clipper ship and uh, there's a you know we got i don't know, we get a dog here that's really that's always cute there's some interesting cityscapes happening this is a very trippy very very cool panel and yeah i had i had noticed that this probably was marvin pumpkinhead but i'll actually say that my first instinct when i saw it was that i actually thought that this for some reason this reminded me of the scarecrow and so for just a moment i actually thought this was going to be the scarecrow's dream that's not true. This is not associated with him in any way. Uh, but that was my my first instinct here. But yeah, you've picked a great panel. So what was your favorite panel, Glenn? So so mine was the very first panel on page one. And, and this is the establishing shot of Arkham Asylum. I, I love looking at buildings. I, I, I'm always going to be drawn to this sort of panel and, and I'm going to pick it, uh, you know, more often than not. But there are some particular things that I like about this image. I, I love... I love how the the light from one window in the midst of a dozen or so darkened rooms just radiates outward. And there's also a crescent moon above the building. And the artists have drawn some really great details in the foreground. So the, the stone that has the sign on it, that's cracked and it's aging. And the lawn in front of it is also overgrown. And all of this gives the asylum... Uh, I guess it gives it a, a really gothic feel. And that just is something that, that really works for me. This is, you know, I love uh, Batman comics in part because of this just sort of mood of what Gotham city is. It has this gothic mood to it all the time. And we get really just this one glimpse of that here in this, in this issue of Sandman. And uh, I was just drawn to it. I loved it. And now that I'm looking closer at the panel, Glenn, I'm really impressed by whoever did the job bolting all the mechanicals onto the roof for that HVAC system, because uh, that looks like a really heavy thing to have be at that 
particular like 15 degree or maybe maybe it's only a seven or eight degree slope but still yeah it does look like like the roof is pretty slanted actually yeah i i don't know that i would want to go up there for that to be my job and it's it's several stories up there that's that's pretty high up yeah so someone someone's job to put that in someone's job to maintain that uh that's a pretty dangerous job and actually as i'm looking at it again more closely here too it kind of looks like the tiles next to it might actually need a bit of repair so someone's gonna have to do that yeah, I wouldn't want to be the one in charge of repairing it, nor would I want to be the guard who has to walk on the path just below it at any point. I think I would, you know, if I was aware that was maybe in danger of toppling off and hitting me, I would walk further from the building by about 100 feet every time I had to do the rounds through that area. Well, I think if there is one thing that we have learned from this issue is that it is not good to be a guard at Arkham Asylum or maybe even that guard at the storage facility. Guards are not faring well uh, in the Sandman comics so far. But I think other we are, are taking negative career advice from the comics. I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums. Let us know what you thought of this issue. Let us know what you thought of this episode. And let us know if you're able to use scum as a verb in in any way uh, uh, before our next uh, episode comes out. Uh, Next time, uh, issue six, 24 hours. Uh, and it will take us in a much darker place than I think we've even been so far. I'm very excited for the continuation of the hunt for the ruby and the story of John D. But until then, pleasant dreams.